We have the chronicles of ancient kings and high priests. We have records of bloody wars, great floods, and calamitous famines. But what about the ordinary people of the ancient Middle East? What do we know about them? Did they have parties, drink beer, were they career-minded? What were their habits and health concerns? Welcome to Unraveling the Middle East. I'm Adele Ali, your host. In this episode, my guest, Dr. Amanda Badani, will unearth thousands of clay tablets to tell us about the people of the ancient Middle East, particularly about their kindness to one another. And after we recorded the podcast, Dr. Padani noted to me that our conversation about civility in the ancient Middle East and observations of our shared humanity with those ancient people was about the common people, not the governments or tyrants. And I think that's a really important point to note now, as we frequently hear tragic news from the Middle East. So it's important now, as it was several thousand years ago, to separate the people, the people of Iran, the people of Israel, the people of Palestine, the people of Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and so on, and our perceptions and analyses of the Middle East, to separate the people from their governments. Unraveling the Middle East is a special series production of the History Behind News program, where 125 scholars and counting explain the histories behind our current events. In the four seasons of the History Behind News podcast, I've had the pleasure of speaking with many prominent scholars about Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, Arabia, and Iran and its Persian past. But you know what? We've only scratched the surface here. So join me and my guest scholars in this fascinating journey into the history, myths, and mysteries of the Middle East. My guest for this episode is Dr. Amanda Padani, a professor of history at California State Polytechnic University Pomona, which most of us know as Cal Poly Pomona. She specializes in the study of Syria and Mesopotamia in the Middle and Late Bronze Age, she is the instructor in a series of 24 video and audio lectures for the Great Courses Teaching Company called Ancient Mesopotamia, Life in the Cradle of Civilization. She has authored many books, including the following, which we discuss in this two-episode podcast. First, Brotherhood of Kings, How International Relations Shaped the Ancient Near East, which won an award from the American Historical Association. The second book is Weavers, Scribes, and Kings, a New History of the Ancient Near East, which was published in December 2022. To learn more about Dr. Padani, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Padani and I unravel the Middle East. Dr. Padani, in this segment, I want to speak with you about the Middle East. Uh, from the perspective of another book you've authored, which is titled Weavers, Scribes, and Kings, A New History of the Ancient Middle East. Um, I'm fascinated. First of all, I'm fascinated by how you and other scholars know so much about the Middle East. And in, 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 in yesterday's conversation, you talked about tablets, clay tablets. And these are about 
sort of proclamations, codes, messages between kings. I get that. How do you know about ordinary people? Well, the great we're talking about four thousand years ago. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, The great thing about clay is it can last for a very long time in the earth. Uh, Papyrus, uh, parchment, other things that people would write on in the ancient world, in other parts of the ancient world, tend to disintegrate, and there's the, the records don't survive. But with clay tablets. If a clay tablet has been baked in the sun, thrown on the floor, and ends up just lying there for 4,000 years, when you excavate it, it's still there and it's still readable. So there is an estimate of the between half a million and a million of these clay tablets have been found. There's um, half a million? Yeah, at least half a million. There may be as many as a million. They're not, nobody's ever actually managed to count them all. And these are just the ones that have been excavated. These, they're, you know, presumably countless more were written at the time. And because they wrote on clay, we have everything. We don't just have the things that the kings wrote to one another that were kept in an archive. Yeah. We have, you know, if you dig up someone's house in some periods of, of this uh, era, you find contracts for the purchase of the house. Um, he hired a, a workman. So there's the, the hire of the workman. There may be his will. There may be his marriage contract. There's some time when he was taken to court and he has his court record. The the owner of the house might have been called up for labor duty and there's the list of other people he served with. There's just his, you know, his personal archive and it's just lying on the floor of his house. And that's true in so many places that we have, and that those are sort of middle-class people if you've got um, documents on the floor of your house. But also even people who were illiterate, they come into documents that were put together, for example, by the palace. So if the palace is hiring um, weavers, and the, I, I love weavers, they're in the title of my book, yeah. weaving women. So they've got a lot of weaving women working for them. They're paying rations to these weaving women. And so they would, the scribes would draw up lists of all the weaving women by name, whether they had children, how much they were paid, which team they were working on, maybe how much um, grain they were receiving that week. And you can take these and by looking at them in large numbers and t- tracing the names of people, you can follow someone's career. You know, how she moved up in the woman named Zoom that I wrote about, that uh, she started out as a member of a team of weaving women and she became an overseer of the weaving women. And we see, you know, how much she was paid. We can tell she didn't have children living at home at the time. You know, that this is a woman who would have absolutely no idea that the future would remember her. You know, it's like, wow. I'm sure Zoom wasn't thinking, oh, 4,000 years from now, actually in her case, 4,500 years from now or so, 4,300 years. Um, people will be talking about me. Of course not. But we do because those records survive. So there's... So was think, was writing on these clay tablets easy? I sort of have this uh, a silly image of someone, well, this clay tablet, they're not chiseling, but it's just, you know, you're not typing. I mean, how does this, was it easy yeah, to do scribes, this? The scribes were incredible. If you see these tablets, they're so beautifully done. Most of them really, the, the cuneiform, which is done with a stylus, a small stylus, and, and a lot of the tablets are quite small, they could be held in your hand. And, and they would apparently write quite fast. They would go to scribal school and they would learn how to do it. And so in order to be able to, it was something, unlike hieroglyphs where you have a whole little drawing to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although at that point they used hieratic, which was also very fast, but um, but they were able to, to make these little wedge signs yeah, very quickly so that it was something that was completely practical to use for uh, keeping track of records and so did most of the writing was it mostly done by scribes or did people that were also literate but were not professionally scribes also write 
Yeah, there were uh, hmm. um, there were scribal schools, and most people who went to scribal schools became scribes for most yeah. of the time, because it was a big investment of time to put your son through scribal school or daughter. Occasionally, daughters were literate too, and um, and that means you've lost that person's economic contribution to the household. Yeah, and, it's literally and, an investment. It is an investment. So it tended to be sons of scribes, sons of priests. Um, sons of people who were government officials who would get scribal training, and then they would be considered to be scribes if you'd gone through scribal training. On the other hand, there are some instances, for example, we know that some merchants were literate, that they went to some, they got some schooling mm -hmm. in order to be able to um, do the kind of record keeping that they would need when they were on a trading expedition, for example. But the vast majority of people probably were, certainly were illiterate. Um, illiterate. The vast majority of people didn't go to school. What subject areas of life did you learn about in ah, researching this book? There were so many fabulously interesting things that I, I found. What I did was I, I obviously read a lot of what other people have already been writing about in my field, yeah. but they've been discovering things that haven't gotten out to the public and such interesting things. So I'm, I'm certainly crediting a lot of my colleagues with this research, but for example, um, there's uh, oh musicians, there's barbers, there are bricklayers, there are, you can just about think of any profession and you can name a person in that profession and go in pursuit of what their life was like. Jewelers, washermen, um, uh, weavers, lots of weavers. Uh, there's, there's the scribes and, and the students at school. There are so many of these that what I ended up doing was rather than writing a history as I had initially thought, a just sort of overall history of the engineers, the history is constructed of small biographies of people in these many different professions. Oh, interesting. So yeah. Looking at their life, you kind of get a sense of what it was to be alive at that time. There are, I must say, a lot of kings in the book. So it's called Weaver Scribes and Kings yeah. because it is also looking at the political history. It's not entirely a history from the ground up. It's a history looking at lives of people in many different um, professions, but including the big name kings. I'm not going to leave out Hammurabi or Sargon or Ashurnazapal, you know, the, those kings are there too. But they too have a, a sort of mini biography, which then we we then move on to people who work for them. So when I was looking at Hammurabi, Hammurabi is interesting, but there's a soldier in his time whose life I was able to sort of reconstruct a little bit. And um, Well, tell and, us about that. What was that like? Oh, it's so interesting. This, this soldier's name was Masham. Um, we know about him because uh, Hammurabi at, at one point allocated a field for Mashim to use. And so that took me into the whole system of how soldiers were paid at the time. And there was a system called Ilkum, so that rather than being getting getting rations or or something like that, the king would give the each soldier a little plot of land, not give it, he would let him use it. And it was his family could use it when he was on campaign. And for most of the year, the soldier was a farmer. He was farming his land and he was living off the, the produce of the land. But when he was called up for military service, he would leave. He would leave his family on the farm and he would go off and, and serve the king. But he would maintain himself through this ilkum. And then you see that there were rules about the ilkum. He wasn't allowed to sell it. Um, if he was taken hostage, if Masham was taken hostage when he was on campaign, there were rules about the fact that his wife was allowed to stay on the property and his son would ideally, you know, if he was, if he didn't come back from war, his son would take over his military service for him. There were all sorts of interesting things. 
And then also for Hammurabi, um, again, thinking about the Ilkum, I then looked at the man who was responsible in one part of the country for giving out these Ilkums, for, for, for determining which land went to which soldier. And this was a man named Shamash Hazir. And Shamash Hazir had this very difficult job of trying to figure out what land was available. The king says, give Ilkums to these men. He's like, okay, well, I need to find the Ilkum land that's available. And we have his records and we have letters from Hammurabi writing to him. And Hammurabi telling Shamash Hazir, there's a gardener and he says that you've given his land to someone else. So could you check into this? Because I think it's actually his land. Check into and he gives you the name of the gardener. And he turned, and so Shamash Hazir is, you know, running all over the country trying to figure out, is this gardener in fact have, has the right to the land and therefore it couldn't be given to someone else? I mean, there's just so, so much. It's fascinating stuff. You get a little bit beneath the surface of the kings. And there's this whole world in which they were living and, and the people working for them and working for themselves. And it's it's just so did, much fun. Did you learn anything about um I don't know, habits or personal crisis of people at that time. You know, time management is a big thing in our time. Or I'm, I don't have time, you know, or things that may resonate with us, uh, modern mm-hmm. Americans. Um, habits. One of the the fun uh, sources to read are the letters that people, that regular people wrote to one another. And um, so it wasn't just the kings who would right? The, the, if you had something that you needed to communicate to someone, you could hire a scribe and send a letter. And these letters are great fun, because often people wrote them when they were kind of at their wit's end. And so you do get evidence of people who were, you know, procrastinators. It's like a brother will write to to um, to his brother and say, I've been waiting for three days. You haven't shown up. Where are you? We were supposed to meet here and you're not here yet. Not or three hours, more. three days. I love yeah, it. No, well, yes. I mean, you know, three hours you wouldn't get the letter in time but and then someone else who would say i'm expecting the oxen you said you'd send the oxen they haven't shown up i need them for my harvest please send them now so you can see the sort of um the the typical human failures of you know i didn't get to it in time but you can also see sometimes someone will send a note saying um and you can see they're smugglers. <laughs> They'll say the guards are uh, strict, and you need to kind of take that other route that you were going to take to reach me, so that you don't have to pay the taxes. And they're passing this in tablets. In, yeah, oh, they're passing boy. it in tablets to one another. And so there's a, a real humanity that comes through in the uh, in the letters, and they often wrote when they were really anxious about something. And so you do get the uh, the tone of of um, of sort of things being rather an emergency. If yeah, yeah. Did you learn anything uh, about uh, health, mental health, anything in that area? Oh, there's a lot about health. Yeah, um, they they did suffer from diseases, obviously. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, um, there's one example from the Kingdom of Mari, where the king Is, was. Was that also in Mesopotamia? It was also in Mesopotamia. Well, it's in Syria, but yeah, okay. I, I think of Syria and Mesopotamia as kind of all Mesopotamia because the culture yeah. is shared, at least along the river, along the Euphrates. Um, so this king Zimri Lim and Mari uh, wrote a letter to to express his concern that one of his um, the women who worked in his household had gotten sick, and he actually says, "Let no one share her bed. Let no one share her cup." Um, and he's aware, I mean, obviously they didn't know about germs, but they knew that these were ways that the disease was transmitted. Oh, kind of like a quarantine yeah, of some sort. Yeah, like a quarantine. And so he was sort of trying to quarantine her. And another woman who got sick, um, he was saying she needs to be in a different house. 
And then he worries, he says, but how are we going to find a house for her? So he was really trying to move her out so that she wouldn't infect other people. So they were they were very much aware of the problems of you know contact with someone causing that person to have disease, although they didn't know the actual means by which it happened. And they feared plagues, obviously. Plagues happened, and when they happened, this plague that killed um, uh, a king, a Hittite king that I mentioned before, Superliuma, uh, was a plague that was in the land of Hatti in what is now Turkey for 20 years. And oh, there's wow. a very sort of desperate letter from his his son, who was king, letters to the gods. And he's saying, gods, please take this plague away. You know, what else can we do for you? That's so if that's a letter, how to whom is that letter delivered? They take it uh, to the they temple? They would speak it to the gods. You know, oh, I see. Because the gods were in their statues, you would read this letter aloud to the god who's sitting right there in the, in the, in the temple saying, please, what can we do? You know, everybody's dying. Oh, that we is need, fascinating. We need you to take this plague away. So yeah, they were very aware of of disease, but also they had famine. And in one case, when you're talking about anecdotes, this is tragic story of a family um, in the land of Amar. Amar was also on the Euphrates in Syria. This was later. This was um, late 13th, early 12th century BCE. And there's a set of legal contracts between a woman and a number of other people. And she had but women could enter into contracts. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, she was initially in the first one with uh, her husband had left, and she had um, three small children, and she was trying to survive. It was she was desperately poor, and so she entered into a contract with another woman who was going to buy her daughter. Now at this point, the daughter is probably only about two years old, but oh, the woman that's... was going to buy her daughter. But instead of saying as a slave, it says to bring her up as a daughter. So it seems as though this initial arrangement was that she was going to get money for her child, but the child wouldn't be enslaved, that it was in, in a way almost a form of adoption that this yeah, woman yeah. <clears throat> But the woman didn't come through, uh, the money didn't come through. And so we, the next contract we find, the woman is no, still has all three children at home. She's had another baby. She now has four very small children. And the um the family her, her husband's there and they have decided they have to sell all four children into slavery and it's just oh. the most tragic example uh, this woman kue we know her name we know her children's names and the most unbelievably sort of heartrending part of it is that the contract says and their feet have been placed in the clay pressed into the clay and we have the clay footprints of these children so that the the children actually press their feet into clay as part of becoming slaves to another person. And we have their little tiny footprints. And the little footprints are engraved and sealed as though they were uh, legal contracts with names of witnesses, who's seen this, who's who's taking them into his household. And I just, oh my gosh, the baby twins, they're actually probably a, you know, a, a girl who was maybe three little twins. And then there was a baby who was so small that it said she was still at the breast and therefore she didn't press her foot into clay yet, but she was sold into slavery as well. And just the tragedy of this family being so poor that they have no option in terms of being able to feed their children than to sell them. I mean, it's just. That bad. is both fascinating and extremely sad. Oh, um, so <clears throat> yeah. In, 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 the, in the minute we have left uh, of this segment, I'm just wondering, you're sharing names with us, Kuhei, and before you talked about a woman, I think her name was Zoom. Uh -huh. I understand that you and your colleagues read this language, uh, Akkadian and cuneiform, written in cuneiform. How do you know how to pronounce it? 
Oh, actually, that's really nice. I mean, that's a whole other story in terms of the decipherment, but we do know how to pronounce it because um, it's a Semitic language and it shares a great deal with modern Semitic languages and, and older I Semitic see. languages like Aramaic and, and um, Arabic and Hebrew. These, these are languages that uh, also the, the script records the vowels. In some ancient languages, the vowels were not recorded, and so we're kind of guessing about where the vowels were. But yeah. cuneiform, each symbol is, uh, each sign is for a con is for a syllable, which includes a consonant and a vowel. Sometimes just a vowel. Sometimes one consonant, one vowel. Sometimes um, you know two two consonants and a vowel. But we do know what it sounded like. I mean, we may have it slightly wrong, but we definitely know what it sounded like. Oh, I mean, that's, that's feeling amazing. Travel, they'd probably laugh at how we pronounce it. <laughs> that's amazing. <clears throat> Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Padani as we get into the perspective. You can put a face to this podcast by visiting our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash at unraveling the Middle East. In our video podcast, in addition to watching me and my guest scholars discuss the Middle East and its amazing history, you will also see pictures of people and places my guests talk about and read brief explanations of terms and events they reference. I've dropped a link to our YouTube channel below. Now, let's get back to unraveling the Middle East. Dr. Padani, how do life stories of ancient Middle Easterners compare to our lives, the lives of us modern Americans? In so many ways, they are so different. I mean, obviously, they ha don't have our technology. Um, they don't have our speed of communication. They don't have our understanding of science. All of these things were in the future. So their lives were dramatically different. As we talked about yesterday, they have very different religious um, system. They have very different religious beliefs. And so in some ways, it seems, you know, when they say the past is a foreign country, in some ways, it does feel very strange and, and foreign in terms of, of their, um, how they lived, what they did. But I'm often struck by the similarities. If you think similarities, about- Similarities, okay. Yes. I mean, we still live in houses we still have streets outside our house. So did they. We still eat food that comes from the ground. You know, we, we grow our crops and we eat very much the same foods that they did. Um, we still have dinner parties. They had dinner parties. We have, <laughs> uh, we have friends. Um, they were very, they're very sociable people. Um, the ancient Middle Eastern cultures were all about, um, getting together with people. You have images of the, the way they would share beer. Beer was their best sort of drink of choice. They'd have a big pot of beer with straws and everybody would sit around with a straw in this big beer jug and they would drink beer and they would chat. You know, I mean, there's, there's, um, they, they were- Next time I hang out with my buddies, it's gonna be very manly if we're gonna drink beer. <laughs> With from, straws. from straws, yes, absolutely. Um, they, uh, but the straws were useful because there was a lot of, uh, of sort of um, scum in the beer and the yeah. straw got you past the scum. Um, but uh, so I think they, they got married, they had kids, they had families, they cared about each other. They would, as I was saying with the letters they would write, the letters were just, you, you, can, you can see how they were feeling. And it's not that strange. I think the shared humanity is the thing that is really striking when you, you look at their, their lives, that even though they have nothing like our experience in technology and they don't 
work by the clock and all the things that we do. They were they were human beings and they were they lived in a way that we recognize. And sometimes I think, and this is maybe off topic, but sometimes I think that far off in the future, always supposing human beings survive that long, 10,000 years from <laughs> now. If you were looking at ancient history, I suspect ancient history will go up very close to our own age. You know, when people were still doing very much the same things. They had wheels on their vehicles. They had domesticated animals. They had, you know, crops. They lived in houses. Who knows what's in the future? But we still have so many things that develop there. Systems of law. You know, they had laws. Yeah. They had law courts. They had diplomacy, like we talked about. Many, many aspects of their culture have come through to us today. So I think one can get sort of lost in the differences and then lose sight of the fact that there's a lot that we share. Do you think there are any lessons from that time, from ordinary lives of people for us? I I think I think the lesson for me is is the um is the kindness and sympathy one sees in them that as I say we haven't lost it but it's there. And and I think learning about these people and seeing their, their thoughtfulness. I mean, they really, there's, there's so much about their culture uh, in the ancient Middle East that is is thoughtful and considerate. And, um, and one doesn't see, for example, random acts of violence are very uncommon in the texts. There's, um, again, the sort of misconceptions we have. Uh, the, the idea that someone in a city would randomly attack someone else, it, Probably it happened, but there's very little record of it. There's but no people... mass shooting back then, right? No, no, actually, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, that there was, and, and perhaps it was because they tended to live in communities within a city that were, were closely tied to one another. They knew their neighbors very well. They yeah. were, the same people would live near one another for very, very long periods of time. And perhaps that's not attainable in a modern city. You know, we, we couldn't go back to that. But it, it is, it, it seems as though, although they suffered from many horrible things like disease that they couldn't deal with. And, and they did have more warfare than, than, you know, that affected individuals perhaps more than it does today. And, and there were certainly things that were very tough about their lives, but they, they managed really well. And they had this desire for sort of stability and, um, and watching out for each other, which I think is admirable. That's, that's wonderful. Dr. Badani, thank you for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners. If you know of any history, that could unravel the Middle East, please share it with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's not often that a U.S. president and a comedian talk about classified information. I'm referring to President Biden's appearance in Seth Meyers' show, during which they joked about the mega-led Taylor Swift slash Kelsey political conspiracy theory. Well, we got a great episode for you at the History Behind News podcast. It's the history of America's conspiracy theories, some of which turn out to be true. I've dropped a link for you to that episode below. Also, please join my guest and I next week as we unravel the Middle East. If you enjoyed the music in our podcast, check out the links and attributions to the talented artists who created these wonderful pieces. As for our guests... The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. 
at Unraveling the Middle East podcast, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history of the Middle East. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here. Rather, our guests provide in-depth analysis of and narratives from the past. And our mission is not to provide a complete account of this region with its long and complex history. Rather, it's to highlight some issues and incidents from its past that may poke and prod your discerning minds to unravel the histories, myths, and mysteries of the Middle East. And if you disagree with our take on the history of the Middle East, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about complex issues that elude easy soundbite answers. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments on our social media pages or sending me an email to info at historybehindnews.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Unraveling the Middle East.